Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand just a little bit more about how the other side thinks. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Be more prepared, more competitive, and more effective. To see if you're a fit for Skyway, visit skywaymember.com. The topic this week is government furnished property. Let's get started. Can you believe we've been doing this for two years? This episode is two years of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Uh, for me, it's been awesome. We, we've shared a lot of content. We've gotten a lot of great feedback. met a lot of really cool podcast listeners. And as it turns out, we have like thousands of people that are listening to this stuff. So, And we've learned a lot ourselves as we've gone along about not only how to make a podcast, but a lot about government contracting just by talking to people. And we, we learned the things that we didn't know that we didn't know. Before we get started, remember at the end of this podcast episode, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the major changes that we're making to the community, the Skyway community, and also a special opportunity that's coming up for podcast listeners. But first, let's talk about government furnished property. Yeah, GFP, GFE, there's lots of government furnished out there. Government furnished property is usually called GFP. There's also government furnished equipment, which is a, a different nuance that's GFE. We are, to make this easy, we're going to stick with calling it GFP the whole time. That way we don't have to say government furnished anything long form for the rest of this episode. There's a whole far part that talks about government furnished stuff. It's far part 45. But before we get started, let's take a second to say thanks. This week we'd like to thank Procurement Pros for a retweet. Retweet. That's hard to say. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, and the reason I want to thank Procurement Pro is, is they they retweeted. A, we, I, I did one on uh, in government contracts. It's really important to understand questions. It was a, a, an article that we had written, and Procurement Pros has done a lot of sharing of our content on LinkedIn and on social media in general. So I appreciate that. All right, let's get into FAR time. FAR Part Forty Five covers policies and procedures for providing government property to contractors, contractors' management and use of government property, and reporting redistributing, and disposing of that government property. Sounds easy. Yeah. It doesn't apply to software and intellectual property. That's a whole different world. One thing I'll read is Part 45 000B5, and this is talking about other things that, that Part 45 doesn't apply to. It does not apply to items incidental to the place of performance when the contract requires contractor personnel to be on a government site and the property is used by the contractor but still accountable to the government. For example... Office space, desks, chairs, telephones, computers, and fax machines. <laughs> I, don't, fax I, don't, machines. I don't think there's any fax machines anymore, but there might be. The point is, if you are working on a government site and you use government equipment to do your job, if it's an office and you have a government phone sitting on your desk, you don't have to track it. They're tracking it. It's their stuff. So here's a situation, a possible situation anyway. So you're awarded a contract from the government. You're a small business. This contract requires you to develop some software and requires some super high-powered computers in order to run the software, to do the development, because that's what they're going to run their software on. You buy these computers with government money, and you do your software development on them. You've just entered the world of government-furnished property. It's government equipment. They own it, but it's in your possession. And what's that mean? That means that you have to track that property. You have to keep cognizance of that property and know where it is. It's not yours to keep forever. Also, 
if you're building something for the government, if you have to build a car for the government, you buy a lot of parts. Parts are sitting around until you can assemble them into a final vehicle, right? Those parts are the government's property along the way. You have to keep track of those. So these are things that you buy and you integrate into the final product. You have to keep track of what you've bought along the way. Maybe the car required a special engine that isn't available from anywhere except for the government. The government has some. They may give you the engine to put in the car. That's, that's also government property. That's pretty. It's a little easier to understand than the stuff you've bought yourself. But that is, that is a piece of government-owned something that now you're accountable for. But what we're not talking about is things that are consumed in the course of doing business. Like maybe not every nut and bolt and screw needs to be tracked. We're also not talking about capital equipment. So your office workers, if you're a small business, you might have a computer on your desk that you use to do your accounting. Well, that's yours. That's company-owned equipment separate from government-owned equipment. You should probably still track what you own and what you don't. (laughs) True. But it needs to be tracked separately from the government property. It needs to be segregated so that you can tell what's what. Maybe the same computer if you're a software developer. Maybe the same type. You may have two of them on your desk. But one of them could be the companies used for company business, and one of them is used specifically for this government contract. And no wonder it gets complicated, just like that. So there's some policy related to the government providing a contractor government property. And 45.102 spells out that that policy. 45.102b says the COs shall provide property to contractors only when it is clearly demonstrated. And number one is to be in the government's best interest. Of course. And number two is the the overall benefit to the acquisition significantly outweighs the increase in cost of administering or administration of the item, including ultimate property disposal. And the reason I jump on that one is that just because you have something and just because it's easier to have the the government own it, who's going to have this when the contract is over? So the example you just used of you have these servers or you have this equipment, you have software, what are parts, whatever, you got to think about in the whole cycle Who's going to have this equipment at the end? Who's, le- who's left holding the bag trying to figure out how to get rid of it? And that could be really dicey if it's equipment that you can't just, you know, recycle or, or throw or, in a landfill. Yeah, some kind of ha- hazardous material yeah. gets stuck with that one. And another element that's listed in here is this concept of risk. It says the property does not substantially increase the government's assumption of risk. So, and again, that doesn't define what that risk is, but think in terms of a piece of equipment that the government is now responsible for managing. You, the contractor, have to say, where is it? What's it doing? Etc. Does that piece of equipment create more risk? So the funny part of this to me is it just talks about the government can only provide property to contractors when it's in their best interest and when it's cost efficient and it, you know, it doesn't add to risk. There's actually, in the FAR, it says, the contractor's inability or unwillingness to supply its own resources is not sufficient reason for furnishing or acquiring property. So, so in other words, if you say, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go buy that, the government isn't going to get it for you. <laughs> so there's a story in that. Why they had to add that paragraph to the FAR tells me that somebody tried to pull that off and say, I don't really want to go get it. Can you just give it to me? And one more piece of the FAR I want to talk about. 45104 says responsibility and liability for government property. And the general rule is contractors are not liable for the loss of government property under the following types of contracts. So cost reimbursable, time and material, labor hour, and fixed price contracts awarded on the basis of submission of certified cost and pricing data. So what this is saying is if the government loans you something that they own and it breaks or you lose it, you don't necessarily have to pay them back, except that... 
the contracting officer can revoke the government's assumption of that risk if the property administrators determine that the contractor's property management practices are non-compliant with the contract requirements. And there's a FAR clause that tells you all about what you have to do to manage government property. So basically, if you're not doing a good job managing the property and you lose stuff, you could owe the government for the stuff that you lost. Okay, in the time zone world, when does this apply? This is really the execution zones, right? Yeah, mo- most of the time you're going to feel this is after you've gotten the contract and you're having to manage all this stuff. You're having to track it, track all the equipment and make sure that you're not losing it and it's not getting broken and you know where it is at this very moment. Right, so the honeymoon phase, you're trying to figure out how you're actually going to get possession of all this government property. You're using it during the performance and recompete zones. And the wrap-up zone is probably where you're trying to figure out how to dispose of it. And whose responsibility it is to uh, dispose of it. Exactly. <laughs> it also comes in during the acquisition time zones. Sometime during the market research zone or the RFP zone, it could be possible that the government's trying to figure out what government furnished property they might need to provide to all the competitors, to whoever wins, but put it out there. You can use this if you want to. So you may hear about it in the acquisition time zones, but really I think when it most affects you is the execution zones. You have to understand it when you're submitting a proposal, of course, because sometimes RFPs tell you that there's a whole bunch of government furnished property available. If you choose to use that, you have to tell them because then they offset the price that you've proposed against the use of that government furnished property to level set you against contractors that don't use that government property because there's a cost to using it and there's a cost to not using it, right? Yeah. And, and one thing to, to jump on there, and the recompete zone is where that conversation should happen, is when it gets time to recompete the contractor. And that's an execution zone, but that's where we start having this conversation of, okay, can we use this equipment again? Was this the right equipment to use? Can we roll this over to the next contract? All of those conversations, the incumbent should be, if you're a contracting officer, and, and these are the things I didn't do as well looking back, during the recompete zone, figure what kind of equipment do you have? Because sometimes you have a lot of it that we can reuse. Have that conversation during the recompete zone. So to your point, that doesn't drop on the RFP. It's part of the communication and the RFI saying this is the equipment we, we intend to leave with this contract when you recompete for it. So the industry can start planning sooner. My habit was I'd say, oh, let's throw that in. <laughs> and it was a surprise, <laughs> which was not a great way to do it looking back. So that gets us to why this is so important. Why is it important to understand GFP? Because this is U.S. government property. This is taxpayer property. We, you and I, we all own this, a small piece of it anyway, a fraction of it, right? (laughs) Very very small piece. Fair taxes. Like an atom worth of it. So contractors have to track and account for this. The basic information that you need to be able to track is how much you paid for it, the value, when you bought it, where is it right now, and it down to what room in your building is it in, possibly. You need to know what contract it's accountable to. If you have multiple contracts with that all have government furnished property on them, you need to know which property belongs to which contract. And by the way, you can't share it back and forth <laughs> without permission from the government. Yeah, there's a whole other layer. <laughs> the last thing you need to know is when when did you dispose of it? You need to be able to prove that you don't have it on your books anymore. And there's a form that's usually used for property transfers in the in the DOD world anyway. It's the DD-1149, and this is a document Woo-hoo, that— Right off the top of your head. That's pretty yeah, impressive. That this, is, yeah, this document is used to transfer the accountability of government property from one party to another party. So if you have it accountable to one contract and want to transfer that to another contract, then the contracting officer from the losing contract has to sign— and the contracting officer from the gaining contract has to sign. And then that usually gets incorporated into the contract. There's a 
government property list on the contract. So that was a really long description of how that, that works. And, and the DOD actually has an, a, a system built around this. You'll hear the term IUID, which stands for Item Unique Identifier. It's a unique tag that has – there's a whole clause that describes how to do this. But the idea is that the DOD in particular had so much equipment, they said, we need to build a system around this. The basic concept is there are systems in place and make sure you understand how they work and whether or not you're gonna, they're going to apply to your contract. Yeah, for the IUID tags, you actually have to upload the information to a government-wide database so they have access to that across the government. The last thing we should talk about why this is important is you generally have to have an approved government furnished property management system in order to be allowed to have government furnished property on your contract. And approval can be quite difficult to get. You have to have a, a manual. You have to show that you're following that manual. You have auditors come in and check and make sure you're approved. And if you pass the audit, then you have a big celebration. Well, it's kind of like an approved accounting system except for your stuff. Exactly, exactly. So specifically, why should the government care about government furnished property? One thing is you can avoid duplicative buys. Reuse is actually good. Just think of it in my example before. If you have a company that bought a whole bunch of specialized servers in order to deliver on a software development type program, and then they deliver that software, then you have a whole bunch of specialized servers that may not even be that old that can readily be reused, but this contractor is done with them. What happens? Well, if the system works right, you can give those servers government to another contractor to develop on. And that saves a lot of time. It saves time in figuring out how you're going to buy the new stuff, who's going to buy it, who's going to manage it. And you'd end up with now two sets of servers. And, of course, obviously it saves money. But the, the, the trick here is the definition of how usable the GFP is. Is it outdated? Is it, is it unreliable? Is it, is it last year's technology? Uh, what is the cost of storing it? Like, do you, is it going to cost you more to store it? Yeah, if there's, a, if there's it? a year between uses and you have to keep it somewhere, what are you going to do with it? Who are you going to pay to store it? And who's going to maintain it? How? You, and so here's my, my story that pops in my head. We had equipment that we actually had to pay a contractor under a separate contract to maintain the GFP in between us using it on the contract. Just so that it was would still work when you right. need it, right? It's, 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 you know, it's space-related stuff. It's got to work when you need it. Yeah. And so there's an entire cost-efficiency conversation that should be happening in yeah. the background. We actually have, sadly, we have many examples of a contract's over and the contract is in our spaces, in our server room or in our warehouses. And we were asking, what should we do with this? What should we do with this? And it stays there for a year or more after the contract's over. And you can't just throw it out because you're it's, it's you're accountable for it. But you also can't get the instructions on what to do with it. And you're running out of space. Absolutely. <laughs> so managing all this stuff, it's actually an there's a skill set. There's a profession for property administrators, and that profession is on both the government side and the contractor side. On the government side, property administrators are responsible for making sure that contractors are tracking the property correctly. So we deal with a lot of government people who come in and audit our systems and do regular checks of our systems to make sure we're following the rules that we set up and properly accounting for their property. You have to submit quarterly or annual reports of property on all the contracts, and these are the people that check on that. On the contractor side, property administrators, they're the, they're the ones responsible for creating this system of how they're going to manage it, the government property, and following that system, making sure they follow all the rules, making sure that everything is tagged properly, making sure they know where everything is when it moves from building to building or room to room, making sure the reports are submitted on time, 
and like I was talking about, making sure that the warehouse doesn't get filled up with government property. Probably the most important part of this process, after you've tracked it, the most important part is, is disposing of it. You can't just throw it in the dumpster behind the building when you're done. It's the government's <laughs> equipment. They might want to use it again. That's a great image. Okay, on the industry side, why should industry care about government property? Well, you may be able to get a job done for a lower cost if you're able to use some very, very expensive government property, government equipment, that you don't have access to. And this could be things like having the right government-specific tools that are specific to a particular program or testing facilities that industry doesn't have as many of or can't run as cost-effectively because they, they only have one and they can't pay for it to just sit there like the government can. So there's a lot of unique parts that show up in contracts sometimes that it, industry's ability to use them and show that they can transfer them around and manage them properly as part of their contract it's a win-win because the stuff's getting used and industry is able to execute the contract much more cost-effectively by reusing something the government already owns. Right. They might not be able to be able to afford to get started if it's something like a test facility or something like that that the government owns. Just might not be able to build one yourself in a cost-effective way in order to deliver this. And another reason is this is equalizing the opportunity for, the, for competitors. So if you're a, a company who's been doing this a long time, you have all the facilities and you have – you're the only one that has this one facility, but the government's got four or five other facilities – by allowing the people who don't already have this facility to use the government ones, now you've created competition. Whereas before you had right. somebody owned you need a monopoly. I'm the only one that has this 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 you know flux capacitor. <laughs> so therefore I'm the only one that, that can bid on this contract. So apply that to the GFP model and, and, and you're creating more opportunity for, for small businesses is what pops in my head, but really you're creating more opportunity for competition. That's that's a good point. The, the most important thing I think of why industry should care about this is industry, if you don't take tracking government furnished property seriously, you might not be allowed to, to buy stuff or use government furnished property in the future, which means you may not be able to get future contract awards. If, if you don't have an approved government property management system or you, you lose your approval, you have an unapproved system or no system at all pretty much at that point. No confidence. You may not qualify to even bid on a new contract because one of the requirements of the RP might be that you have to have an approved government property management system. And this is a huge past performance piece. Is that while while we go back to the part where you're not actually liable potentially for losing the hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment, they're not going to send you a hundred thousand dollar bill, although they might. But more realistically, it's hurting your ability to win other contracts. So your point here is that make sure you're managing it well, and that's where the approved the approved processes come from. Is this is a past performance exercise? Is that I don't want to ever give you another contract if you lost something of ours, even if we had to pay for it, especially right. if we had to pay for it, we don't want to give you another contract. All right, we're just scratching the surface here, but we should wrap this up before we get too deep. There's obviously many more episodes we could do to dive into the details of government furnished property management. Yeah, so so my big takeaways are if you buy it, transfer it, distribute it, you got to track it. And that can be as simple as a spreadsheet or as complex as a really high-end database. It depends on how much stuff you have, but you need to understand the complexity and the magnitude of how much this is going to track. Yeah. Uh, the other thing here is you know, how much and how often and where is this stuff being stored? Uh, we had a, a one of the contracts I had that we delivered to a, fa- a central facility for our, our customer, and they just had piles of stuff in there. And the government knew where it was because the contractor had this really complex database that when I said, okay, what room is this rifle in? And they could tell me. That's instilled a lot of confidence in me. Yeah. As opposed to, um, hang on, hey Joe, where's the rifle? Right. Good. It goes from that simple spreadsheet to track everything that needs to be tracked to 
custom software that, that's designed specifically to track government property in a way that will be approved by the government property administrators. For me, what you need to remember, bottom line, you need to track government property from the purchase requisition, from when someone first says, I need to buy something, through the acquisition of whatever that is, through the use of it, through the transfer from this program to that program or to another contract, to disposal of of the GFP. And that can cover years. So you better have some type of system that's not person-specific so that you're not reliant on one person's memory of where that is <laughs> exactly. to track it the whole way through the life cycle. Okay, that's it for GFP for today. Before we wrap up completely, though, let's talk about two years have gone by. Yeah, it's been an amazing experience. I've been really amazed at how awesome, how involved, and honestly, how supportive our podcast listeners are. So if you've been, if you've been listening for a while, you noticed that shortly after we launched the CEO podcast, we realized that there was a need for this content, for our type of knowledge that we're sharing here that went beyond our ability to crank out one podcast a week. So we, were, we created this Skyway community, and you've heard about it if you've been listening for a while. And it, basically, it's a platform that allows us to deliver more content, more webinars, more training, and of course, you know, one-on-one consulting with, with people who need specific help. And that base of people has been growing, right? And as we've been doing this, the community and the, the podcast have evolved based on feedback from, from listeners and also from our members. And the idea was, can you create a membership level that supports this wide group of people. We have people listening that are government. We have people listening that are industry. We have proposal managers, pricers, I mean, all over the place. So earlier this year, in 2016, we created the personal membership. If you, so if you're not familiar with personal membership, essentially gives individual people access to a lot of the resources that are inside the community, a lot of these articles, access to our the brain power of our team of CEOs to help them understand how to be more competitive, more aware in this market, and be proactive, right? So the idea is people who want context, that's what the personal membership is a great fit for. And because of, again, great feedback, we're raising the bar again. Based on a request from a member who wanted to be able to view the Ask a Contracting Officer forum content, which is where you ask questions and you get answers from our team of CEOs, they didn't need to post, they just wanted to be able to view. So we said, let's upgrade the software and make it so that you can view it. So now the personal members can view all of the content from the questions and answers inside those threads. So if you're a personal member, if you're already a personal member of the community, this enhancement that we've added, it's included. You're already getting it. It's you just, just go to the, the forum tab inside the community and click on it and poof, you're there. And of course, this addition, because you're already an existing member, this addition came at no additional cost to you. However, the rate is going up for new members. If you've been a long-time podcast listener and you haven't joined the Skyway community yet, this is an ideal opportunity. We have a special promo code. Just email me at kevin at skywayacquisition.com and I'll give you the, the current promo code and you can get the personal membership for 50% off. So go to skywaymember.com and there's a video in there that walks through how the community works. But email me, kevin at skywayacquisition.com and you get the, the promo code. They'll get you 50% off a personal membership. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Okay, that's it for another episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Connect with us. Try the Contracting Officer Podcast Network Group on LinkedIn or the Government Contracting Network Group on Facebook. Remember, our topics are listener-driven, so send me your ideas to paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.